time for The Outspoken Cyclist, a weekly conversation about cycles, cyclists, travel, trails, advocacy, the bike industry, and much, much more. WJCU broadcasts and streams The Outspoken Cyclist on-air show at 8 a.m. every Saturday morning. In Northeast Ohio, tune in to 88.7 FM, or worldwide, listen in at wjcu.org. Our weekly podcast is available at the close of the on-air show at OutspokenCyclist.com or download it with your favorite podcatching app to listen anytime. Now here's your host, Diane Jenks. Hello and welcome to the Outspoken Cyclist. I'm your host, Diane Jenks, and this is our show for October 10th, 2020. We've been talking a lot about the plight of the bike industry the lack of product, the backed-up service departments, and the need for new protocols due to the pandemic. To help explain how all of this is affecting our U.S. bike manufacturing, I contacted White Industries in Petaluma, California. White Industries is a family-owned business manufacturing hubs, cranks, bottom brackets, rims, headsets, and more. Since no titles are used at White, I'll just say that I spoke with Lynette Tepfer, to find out how COVID-19 has affected the company, how their supply chain is doing, and what they're forecasting for 2021. And oh yeah, then there are the California fires not too far from them. Then, as promised two weeks ago, Zapata Espinoza, editor-in-chief of Road Bike Action and Mountain Bike Hall of Famer, yes, they may seem diametrically opposed, and they are not, joins me for a terrific conversation. Zap will be with me in the second part of the show. Before we talk with Lynette at White Industries, though, there's one more item of interest. According to ex-pro racer Phil Guyman, several pros on the circuit in Europe right now have recovered from COVID-19 some time ago and yet are still not well enough to train, let alone race. That's a scary item for me as I think of these guys as being in tip-top shape only all the time. Phil didn't name names, but whoever they are, I hope they're feeling better every day. So when COVID-19 hit, we were told to shelter in place, hunker down, and wait. What ensued was, of course, almost ridiculous. Hoarding of toilet paper, empty grocery shelves, and outright panic. But as health officials and governors began to get a grip on what was really happening, they also started saying, we figured out some of this stuff And maybe it's a good idea to go outside. So we all poked our heads back out of our lairs, looked to our bicycles for recreation, and frankly, for some sanity. Into the garage or basement, tens of thousands of people went to dig out their old, somewhat forgotten bicycles. Unlike many of you who listen to the show and who practically sleep with your favorite bike. What they found were broken bits, flat tires, and frayed cables. And the bike shops were suddenly overwhelmed. Then the supply chain dried up, the pipeline was empty, as were warehouses all over the country. And even our domestic manufacturers found themselves needing to navigate changes in their production facilities while their inventory supplies were sucked up by distributors, bike shops, and in some cases, even by consumers. Lynette Tepfer of White Industries takes it from here. Hello, Lynette. Welcome to The Outspoken Cyclist. Thanks for joining me on the show and taking time to talk with me. I know you're really busy. Yes, it is a busy time in our industry, for sure. It is. What's important to me about White Industries, as right 
now a lot of my listeners will agree, is that you are a U.S. company and that your parts are not only made in the U.S., but more importantly, you, meaning the people who work at White Industries, are actually making these parts. So tell me about the distinction, what it is that that is different about White Industries as opposed to some other quote-unquote U.S. companies. Yeah, well, um, we're a family business, so that's really kind of exciting that you know, while we're a smaller company, we have the original owner and he's still very much involved in the company, although he's just in this retirement phase right now. But um, Doug White originally founded the company and the development has all come through him until just recently. And now his son is taking over, Alec White. So because they're so hands-on in the company and we're small, we feel like a fam- an extension of their their family which is exciting because, you know, when you have that communication within a company and you care not only the product that you're making, but you're caring about the other people, it creates a just really sweet environment to work in. You are up in Petaluma, which is just a, a super nice place. We were really sort of taken with Petaluma as a place to live. So it must be really fun just to be there. Kind of. <laughs> right now, uh, we've got the whole you know, country or the whole, sorry, state is burning up and you know, all around us, there's fires all over. So right now it's not the best place, but it is really normally beautiful. We're right in the heart of wine country. So there's beautiful writing all around us. Um, well, we'll see after we're allowed back into different areas because a lot of it's burning up right now, but everybody there is safe. Yes. Oh, yeah. Good. So okay. we had a couple of People evacuated, but their homes are safe, so we're very thankful for that. Yeah. But it is gorgeous here. There's great riding. You can go out to the coast, which is very close, as you know. It's just a really beautiful place to live. I feel very grateful to be here. We should probably just say a little something about what it is you make. I know you make hubs, but you make a lot of other things. Right. So uh, we make hubs. That's kind of the basis where we really uh, entered the marketplace back in the early 90s. But drivetrain components, we sell a lot of cranks, uh, bottom bracket, free wheels, chain rings. And then we also most recently started to um, introduce headsets into the marketplace, which have done really well for us. And then our most current new product is rims and wheels that we're offering. Mm. How big is the facility? Um, It's 10,000 square feet. Doesn't sound huge when you have that many different products coming out of it. I think that the way that we have organized kind of the shop and the manufacturing, we have small little pods so that we're able to kind of have one person operating several different CNC lathes or mills at one given time. And um, so we're tight in there, but it's very effective and efficient in the way that we've got it set up. Let me remind our listeners, we are speaking with Lynette Tepfer. She is with White Industries. We're not going to give her a title because there are no titles, but she did answer the phone when I called, so that was pretty cool. Um, (laughs) So I I want to talk, bring it up to speed about COVID and what's happening with the company and the economy and how the fire, not the fire so much, because we already know the fires are okay right now for you guys, but how has White Industries, if you have been a in the last six months or set now it's going on even longer right it's been kind of a roller coaster ride you know initially when COVID hit we were looking at it and we we really didn't know what to expect you know we shut down the facility initially um, and then 
we, uh, it was probably about six weeks, I think, that we closed down for. We had the expectation that the industry would kind of die out. So um, that has been a shock for us. Uh, we just thought that everybody would pull in tight. Nobody would be spending money, you know, on bicycle components. And we all know that that is definitely the opposite of what has happened. But as far as we were concerned, what we did was had to restructure our work environment. So for those of us that worked through in the office, we got set up so that we could work at home, which was a whole new learning experience. And how do we work remotely? Because we had never done that before. And then within the shop, we had to work out how to have these social distancing pods, perhaps you would call it pods, that you, you know, and how to keep our employees safe so that we had different areas within the shop so that certain people would only be in one quadrant, which is how it is right now, so that they weren't able to go from one machine to another machine. They had to stay in a certain area. And so that has been very limiting in the way that we handle our production runs now but it's becoming more normal and we're learning how to do a lot more online and communicate through texting to different employees instead of just going up and just chatting like we are, would want to do and having new kind of uh, programs within the computer world that we're able to use and to help us with the production. So it's been a big learning curve for us. I guess. Yeah. And then with the industry, just like, blossoming and just just like kind of being blown out of water um (laughs) you know now we can't even keep up with the demand you know so as soon as we came back online and then the orders just started coming in and it's really exciting to see how many people are getting back into cycling due to covid and it's unfortunate that that is the launching point but at the same time the industry is seeing sales and and a resurgence that I've never seen before since I've been in the industry. So uh, it's pretty exciting to witness. Have you experienced any issues with getting raw material? Uh, Due to COVID, no. Um, That supply chain has been really good. Initially, we had some problems more with the tariff situation Uh, when um, Trump came into office. So that was an issue. But um, due to COVID, we haven't seen anything. So it's been kind of business as normal there. That's good. How about... uh, It's really good. (laughs) Yes. Nothing like having what you need when you need it. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Are you running out of any product? I I think everything's probably selling, but what is selling best? And and are you back-ordered on anything? Um, I'm back-ordered on almost everything. (laughs) Everything is selling through. So that's part of that frustration. It's like the sales are there and partially due to kind of the restrictions we have and the way that we have to operate the shop under the the COVID regulations, we aren't able to keep up our production. But now, you know, the demand is even higher than what we have experienced in many, many years. Having the infrastructure there and the employee base even to do that is a challenge. And not knowing when this is going to kind of taper off, we're kind of reluctant to be hiring more staff because we don't want to hire them. And then if the bottom falls out in a couple months and laying them off and we don't want to get into that situation. So we're just doing the best we can. That brings me to sort of where I want to go, which is predictions. Uh, I mean, what kinds of forecasting are you doing and do you see a slowdown or is that like just pie in the sky? I don't really have a crystal ball. Yeah, I, we don't have the crystal ball. I, I would have thought that we would have started slowing down by now. Not the case. Our sales keep on climbing. So we just 
had a meeting this past week and we just kind of hang on and just everybody's working overtime and they're just strung out and like, okay, let's just do it a little bit longer. And so in January, uh, we're looking at just kind of regrouping and seeing kind of what happens in this, this last quarter and then make decisions from there as to how we're going to expand or if we're going to expand at that time. Wow. So there's been yeah. so much talk about lack of product in all areas from tires and tubes mm-hmm. all the way through hard goods. And it's good to know that there is a company in the U.S. that's making its own product and that is trying to keep up with demand. How can people find out more about White Industries? Where should they go to to look at product? And then uh, do you only deal with is it business to business or business to consumer too? Those are my two questions. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, especially because we're just now, right now we have a B2B site, the business to business site, um, but we are in the process of launching a brand new website slash business to business, business to consumer site. So that is going to be happening this month. Uh, so the best thing is to go onto our website, which is whiteind.com, whiteind.com. And you can go in and take a look right now. It's just the website. You're not out, uh, allowed to order from there. But um, hopefully by November, then it's open uh, to consumers. Currently, the businesses already have access to um, our, our business-to-business site. We've been speaking with Lynette Tepfer. She is with White Industries, a great company out of Petaluma, California. And I hope you guys have... And an easy fall <laughs> and winter. Thank because... <laughs> you. Yes, I appreciate that. <laughs> that would be the best I could wish for you because I know it's just crazy. Thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. All right. You have a great afternoon. Okay, you too. Take care. Lynette Tepfer joined me from the offices at White Industries in Petaluma, California. If you're interested in their products, Just want to know more about the company or you have any questions, you can log on to whiteind.com. So we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, grab a cup of coffee or whatever you'd like to drink and sit down for a most enjoyable conversation with Zapata Espinoza, a.k.a. Zap. You're listening to The Outspoken Cyclist. The Outspoken Cyclist is proud to have Bike Law as a trusted partner. If you find yourself in need of legal advice or assistance as it pertains to any cycling issue, log on to bikelaw.com. back on The Outspoken Cyclist, I'm Diane Jenks. If your entry into bicycling came at a young age, maybe eight or nine, and you loved your BMX bike, then you graduated to either motocross or mountain bike, you know what Zapata Espinosa means when he says he's that kind of guy, the one who loves the thrill of the competition on two wheels. What Zap didn't know was how the mountain bike craze would change his life, from a law degree that never materialized to editor-in-chief of several high-profile bike magazines. Today, 
He's the editor-in-chief of Road Bike Action. He's also a member of the Mountain Bike Hall of Fame. And as he says in our conversation, he wakes up every day loving his work and not imagining doing anything else. Let me introduce you to Zap. Hello, Zap. Welcome to The Outspoken Cyclist. Thanks for being my guest this week. Well, thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. It's my pleasure. I want to start with some background about you. I, I, you are this sort of large, iconic figure in people's minds, but I'm not sure people know a lot about you. All the better. <laughs> okay. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> but let's. I, there's some things you can talk about, like where you grew up, how you got into journalism, and a little bit of your history in the bike industry. Okay. Grew up in Hollywood, California, uh, about... It seems like 150 years ago. Started riding. Uh, we were just uh, up in the Hollywood Hills. We were bicycle and motorcycle mad kids. Easy Rider was a big part of our psyche. And then a movie came out called On a Sunday, a motorcycle movie by Bruce Brown. And that just cemented it for a whole, like the whole neighborhood of kids. So we all went out and either bought uh, new BMX bikes or the older boys bought motorcycles. And um, it's been a life of uh, two wheeled thrills and adventure ever since, to be honest. So yeah, just racing BMX, you know, for years and years, then finally coming of age after, you know, getting my first job and being able to save money for a motorcycle and then then race motorcycles with aspirations to be a pro, like all my friends around me and everything, and did that for for about five years um, before finally seeing the light and realizing that uh, I was never going to be as good as I wanted to be. And so um, went to school, um, UC Santa Cruz. Uh, politics major, sociology minor, went to law school, failed after one year of that. That was the epitome of an oil and water experience. <laughs> and then literally, this is actually my best my best advice from so many people over the years. They asked me, like, you know, how do you get a job like I have? Uh, just right place at the right time. I was at a dusty motorcycle track uh, in Paris, California, uh, racing out there one weekend. And just I had just gotten kicked out of law school. Um, I had gone on tour as a for the friend of mine was the lead singer for the revamped group called Wasted Youth. And so we just done national tour and I'd come home from that. Still nothing to do with my whole life yet. And uh, Jody Weisel, who was an editor for Motocross Action Magazine, who I'd known from my past motorcycle racing days. And literally just I mean, I'm sitting in a lawn chair um, in between races and literally he came up to me and just tapped me on the shoulder and asked me if I'd like to come and work for Motocross Action, um, which is a, a, a motorcycle book that I literally grew up on all through the 70s and 80s. And just anyways, um, and they had just started this this thing called Mountain Bike Action. And uh, I've known about mountain bikes a little bit from my time at UC Santa Cruz. Uh, I remember being at the local bike shop when I was I was riding road bikes in Santa Cruz. On the, I was in the cycling club up there. And I remember I saw a mountain goat, uh, one of Jeff Lindsay's mountain goat, mountain guy mountain bikes uh at the schwinn shop up there and it was just you know this fabulous camouflage beautiful bike but i didn't really mean anything to me at the time so um literally uh right place at the right time uh no journalism major you know no you know no master's degree in fine writing english literature nothing and uh, i really took the job for the motorcycle side of it because like i said the mountain bikes just didn't mean anything to me at all just the, the chance to work at mountain bike or sorry motocross action was just it was more than a dream fulfilled it was more than a fantasy fulfilled it was just you know otherworldly yes so i started there in like november of 86 ish something like that 
you know, we kept doing two mag two magazines, Jody, myself, and a guy named Ed Arnett, who was the then editor of Mountain Bike Action. And then Arnett was going to move on to one of our sister publications, Dirt Bike Magazine, by the following summer, so the summer of 87. And uh, they sort of wanted me to become, or had hoped that I would sort of take the, the mountain bike job. And I remember one day sitting in a hallway with Jody and saying, asking him, like literally, I said, do I have to be the editor of Mountain Bike Action? He goes, no, 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 if you don't want to be. And I didn't want to be. I wanted to stick with motorcycles. And um, they flew a guy out to be prospective editor for Mountain Bike Action. And the two of us went up to Mammoth Mountain for the Norba Nationals in like that August of 87. And uh, three days later, I fell madly in love with the sport of mountain bikes. And Todd, the guy who they flew out to be, had fell madly out of love with the concept. He hated them. And I fell in love with them. And from that point on, I, I remember coming back and I telling Jody that following week, hey, I'll, I'll, I will take this job with, in one weekend. I mean, I'd been to Mammoth many times, racing motorcycles up there. There's a famous track at Mammoth Mountain. But the confluence of pedals, the high Sierras, so much, the, you know, pine scent in the air, Ned Overend, Lisa Muick, John Tomac. I mean, it just, everything came together and just coalesced in my mind. It's just like, it was just what a great, great sport. It really was. Wow. And uh, so moved that, like I said, driving down the highway through 95, you know, Todd and I talking and, and he's just like, you know, I hate these stupid things because he was a motorcycle guy too. <laughs> but, and so there, there it is from you know, August or, you know, of 1987 on. Uh, here I, you know, here, here you I are. Am 100, 160 years later. Right. Let me take a moment to remind our listeners we're speaking with his real name, his whole name, Zapata Espinoza. And if yeah. you saw him, you would never forget him. He is just unforgettable in so many ways. And everybody calls him Zap. So, yeah. so I wanted to uh, ask you a question about mountain biking in general. So I was one of those naysayers back in the 80s when they first came on the scene. I owned a bike shop. I was into road biking, you know, high-end racing bikes, Grichotti, that kind of stuff. And I said, oh, this mountain bike thing, it's just never going to catch on. right?" So, of course, I was wrong about other things too, but I was wrong about that. Why has mountain biking stayed so popular? Because as you Um, get older, you can get hurt. Even as you're younger, you can get hurt. Yeah, you know, but... Maybe a deeper actualization, but it's the same thing. I mean, because now I never even touch thinking flat bar bikes. I'm a drop bar guy completely, whether it's road bikes or gravel bikes. But, but I, I use the same rationalization, cheap as it may be and convenient it may be, because I, you know, I got hit by a car a few times in the last few years. And hmm. my my daughter or other people are like, you know, you know, my doctor, why are you still doing this? Give you know, it I'm up. Like, well, right. Because you can slip in the bathtub and break your neck just as easy, really. And I, I guess that's, you know, a little bit of a lie, maybe. But it's the one I run with. I mean, you can get hurt doing anything, you know, and again, I got pretty hurt, pretty banged up pretty seriously on the motorcycle. So I know that full well. And I've had to write, I've written about that. I've tried to be honest about it. I know that some people avoid talking about the dangerous side of cycling just as a way to avoid trying to dissuade people from doing it. But I've, I've always felt that the best approach is to be open with readers saying, Hey, this is dangerous. You know, especially if you're pinned along traffic on, you know, 25 C tires, you know, I mean, the, the contact patch with a 25 tires, like, you know, a dime. Right. And to think that, you know, you have to you know, look out for errant soccer balls and stupid drivers and everything else. Literally, every time I finish my bike ride, there's one spot here a few blocks away. I come down off of the Alpadina and I turn down and I literally every single time I sit up and I, for my own personal thing, this thing called kiss the sky. And I kiss the sky and I give thanks to, you know, I always say, you know, for la, para la vida, you know, for life and my daughter. Because I made it through, you know, because the most important 
element of any ride is not how many watts you burn or calories you burn or anything else. It's that you get home safe for dinner, I say. And it's no different on road or mountain, you know. Um, but I think mountain biking, to answer your question, you know, mountain is, has succeeded a large part because the technology has always kept people fascinated with it and coming, you know, get, you know, Americans love to spend money. So it's like, oh my, you know, my God, it's like, you know, RockShock has got a new longer travel, you know, dropper post. I've got to get that. Right. And it's also just, yeah, you know, I just wrote a column in the mountain bike action in 2021 is celebrating its 35th anniversary. So um, I wrote my column for that issue 35 years later after I wrote my first column for that issue for the magazine. And, and, you know, the thing I, I talked about a very all different kinds of things, but at the very end, it came back to, for me at least, it's the great outdoors. I mean, nothing is as fabulous as the great outdoors. That was what, again, what, you know, as much as it was the personalities of Mammoth in 1987, it was just being up there. And I love motorcycles. I love loud motorcycles. <clears throat> Don't get me wrong. But, I mean, being up at Mammoth and just the, the quiet of the competition and just the honest effort given because it's all pedal power. There's no, there's no engine. There's no nothing. It's just, it's a great reward. And I think, um, you know, everybody gets into mountain bikes for different reasons, but to your point, I think, you know, it's lasted because, I mean, <laughs> afterwards, you know, thank God, you know, it's why democracy lasts, I hope, you know, because people recognize it. Hey, you know what? Democracy is a great thing and it's worth fighting for. And it's worth enjoying. That's like mountain biking to me. It's, it's really like cycling at all to me, but mountain biking is just one, you know, just another facet of that. Basically, there are people who love to be on a mountain bike, people who love to be on a road bike. And now we have gravel bikes, which sort of gives us the best of all worlds. Yeah. Which brings me to my next question, which is what do you think have been some of the most important and industry changing innovations to come out of mountain biking? Because I know a lot of things came out of mountain biking, even if they crossed over into road including disc brakes, which we will talk about yeah. at some point, but not my favorite. But anyway, go on. <laughs> uh, okay, then how about disc brakes? And then, uh, yeah. <laughs> we and can then, start uh, with the, disc brakes. Uh, okay. No, no, I just, but I mean, more than anything, I mean, you know, I mean, like we do an, each year we do like an editor's choice and kind of like a best and worst of the year. And mm-hmm. yes, last year I, I credited my, my best new product for a mountain bike, or sorry, for, well, for just for road bikes was, was air volume. And I just was really meant, and I drilled down. It's like, well, what I really mean is, bigger tires right and what i really mean by bigger tires is increased safety increased comfort uh those are two things that i've been a big proponent of even if it includes suspension you know suspension ah you know uh you know i I wrote a story a long time ago about how the the word comfort was the dirtiest word in the world of road bikes because you know the, the this whole industry has been based on higher degrees of suffering you know stiffer you know just big oversized diameter aluminum frame tubes back in the day, oversized handlebars, oversized seat posts, everything was oversized to make everything more rigid, rigid, rigid. And then just like slowly but surely, it's like, oh, look, stems are a little bit, or head, you know, steer tubes are a little bit longer and stems are a little bit higher. There's more spaces. I mean, there's no more of this, you know, running and stinking, you know, flat and a uh, um, 150 millimeter stem, you know, stretched out and just everything was just based on performance. And I sort of, reason is just like because like so many of the product managers my one of my favorites you know wayne stetna from shimano who right. has one of the most laudable histories in, in american cycling guess what wayne's older now you know it's like <laughs> he's starting to realize like all these product managers that whether they're a trek or specialized the guys who have been around they're like yeah you know what i'm getting older so i want to be a little more comfortable and and bigger tires more compliant frame designs all these sort of things are starting to come into the the road world but for mountain bikes specifically it's just to, to me it's just bigger tires. I mean, I just I was just doing a ride on a new um, open 
minimal design road bike that Gerard sent us to test. And it's got, it's running 32, 32 millimeter Schwalbe's. And to me, I was just like, oh, this is like, this should be the new road stand. I mean, like just the road, like every road bike should start off with, you know, 30s or 32s because there's just so much, so much more confidence with a bigger tire. So much, and again, safer. I want people to be safe. I want them to, I want everyone to come home from dinner and tell their friends, man, you got to go buy a road bike and get out there. It, this is fabulous, you know? Um, and that can't happen when, when too many people are like suffering from ill-fitting frames or just harsh components and small tires that just slide out at a moment's notice and give you no, no, you know, such minimal amounts of traction and, and compliance. So, so interesting. Yeah. You and my husband would get along so well sitting around <laughs> drinking bourbon, talking about fat tires. Yeah, I don't know about the bourbon part, but oh, I was okay. a nice, nice glass of red wine. Oh, okay. But, we can uh, do that too. But it, <laughs> I mean, he has been trying to convince his clients for years and years. I mean, you know, they went back down to 19 millimeter tires. Like, what are you thinking? And yeah. he, I mean, he's been riding 25s for years. Now it's 32s. Our tandem now has 40 something on it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Let's take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to talk with Zap some more. You're listening to The Outspoken Cyclist. You're listening to the station that is your home for college radio in Cleveland. 88.7 FM, WJCU, University Heights. We are back on The Outspoken Cyclist. If you're just joining me, you need to rewind this conversation. It's really interesting. We're speaking with Zapata Espinosa. He is better known as Zap. He is the editor-in-chief of Road Bike Action. And I did notice that you actually are a pretty strong supporter of bike racing. Um, this year's been a tough year. You, everything's either yeah. been postponed or canceled. And the tour, interestingly enough, just wrapped up. It did happen with a young Slovenian, 21 years old at the top of the podium. Uh, yeah. Yeah. No one abandoned the race also. So I'm just wondering how you see bike racing. Is it going to stay, quote unquote, socially distanced? Are we going to see a change in the way we do bike racing now? Um, well, first of all, yes, always been a, a racing fan. I think, again, that going going back to that same summer of 87, that's what, you know, it was racing then. That, And I've always been a racing guy. So there's motorcycles and bicycles. I love racing. And all throughout, like, the 90s, I remember I used to banter back and forth with, you know, Richard Cunningham was a former editor at Mountain Bike Action. Right. And he always had this, his creed was like, oh, racing doesn't improve the breed. And I thought, like, that's just the most ridiculous thing in the world because racing improves everything in life. Um, whether it's specific technology, which I think there's just no, there's plain and simple, no argument. And I've asked many people smarter than I, I posed that same question to them. Does racing improve the breed? And it was just like, you know, to a, to a person like, of course it does. I mean, how can it not, you know? And so even if you don't even know it, you can get on a bike today. And, and, and I mean, there's so many things subtle and, and big that, that have come from racing. And then just this, this year in the Tour de France stage seven, 17 and 18, I mean, 17, I think it's the thing that's so great about road cycling and road cycling fans. We sit here collectively around the world, I think, on that day of stage 17, at the edge of our seats as four guys are pedaling their bikes up at like 22% grade hill at, you know, three miles an hour. And we were spellbound. Like, I mean, goosebumps throughout. I didn't need stinking backflips. I didn't need, you know, you know, flaming hoops or none of this other crap that, you know, so many sports spectacles seem to, you know, rely on. 
I, and I think it was, I hate to use this word because it sounds so pillowy soft, but it's like, it was like a, a type of, of poetry in motion to see those four guys just, just like hand-to-hand combat, you know? It was pure, it was honest, and the suffering was just, you know, we all, as we've all been there. We all know it's like to even write up an 8, 8% hill, gradient hill. It's painful. And these guys are, you know, 18 to 22% climbs after doing, you know, three weeks into a tour. And it's just like, ah! It's, I'm getting excited right now just talking about it. I love talking about racing because racing, it's so inspiring. And so whatever part of the breed or not, it, it improves or doesn't improve, to me, it's a personal character thing that improves. It improves my life as a human being to see, to see racing and recognize just the bravery of everyone, you know, across the board, you know, even track racing, which I was like, you know, bored to tears watching track racing, but it's like, just, oh, it's just fabulous. Racing is fabulous. It's just, uh, it just speaks to the human condition, I think, of competition. And, and if you're, you know, and there's people who are not competitive and I get it, but I'm one of them that are, and I, you know, so whether it's with between other magazines or just in life itself, you know, I mean, on the free, <laughs> uh, racing's a good thing. And I think that at the end, end all be all, I mean, you know, suspension for mountain bikes, especially has come about because of guys with a racing instinct, whether it was Paul Turner, Robert Reisinger, Horst Leitner, Mert Lawwell, you know, Doug Bradbury, all those guys who are the guys who changed the face of mountain biking forever. Gee, what a coincidence. They're all stinking throttle twisters, you know? And so that was like the big thing back in the day at the mountain bike action because we came from a motorcycle background. And so we were constantly battling this whole stinking like, oh, you know, the throttle twisters are going to ruin the sport, blah, 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 blah. And it's like, people, you have no clue, you know? It's, again, I'm, I'm entirely biased, but it was motorcycle riders and and people like Jose Gonzalez, who's, who has full, single-handedly forwarded Trek suspension development coming from a motorcycle background. It wasn't the bicycle guys. The bicycle guys, early suspension back in the day, horrible, horrible, <laughs> dangerous even, you know? Like Trek, Trek's, first, Trek's first suspension bike was a nightmare, you know? And luckily, higher concept of thinking and learning and uh, the, for the, from the motorcycle guys saved the sport. And that's what helped produce the sport, uh, made the sport last longer. You know, you, you bring up something I didn't even think to talk to you about, but you would have an interesting perspective on it. And that is foisting product on consumers before it's really ready for prime time. And I've seen it time and time again, and then bringing product out and then taking it back because not only doesn't, doesn't it work, it breaks. So what about that? What about testing? Is enough of it done? Uh, are we making mistakes in bringing out yeah. all this stuff? What do you well, think? Well, it's funny you say it because just in light, like last week, my associate at the magazine, Troy Templin, just wrote, a, I think, a really forward-thinking story, uh, sort of a news item about Specialized and their new tubeless wheels, which are no longer tubeless because we're still getting mixed messages from Specialized. But last week was a big week for us in terms of bikes and test wheels in that all of a sudden Specialized was telling us not to run tubeless tires on what had been for a while their tubeless wheels. And so we started digging deeper into that whole thing, which con- was concurrent with them celebrating Philippe winning worlds with inner tubes, which, you know, what pro road racer ever talks about that. Or rim brakes. Um, okay, that's another story. Yeah, it's another story. So um, it's so even like right now when you ask that question, that they're right now the tubeless wheel thing is a concern for me. We've been touting it and I'm sort of like starting to like just maybe it's not the safest thing in the world for certain riders. And what I've 
you know, just re recently discovered, like people are just saying, you know, like hookless rims, you know, with too much air pressure, you, you probably shouldn't go there. If you're, if you're a bigger rider, you know, like I've heard a few guys like Boyd Johnson from Boyd's Wheels saying, you know, for him, 70 PSI is about as high as you should go with tubeless hmm. on the road. And after that, it starts to get a little bit just, it's, I don't know, they're not sure. And then going back to your, the, the question, like, you know, back in the day, we used to test so much mountain bike stuff, like, you know, carbon fiber handlebars mm -hmm. back in the mid, early to mid nineties. And, you know, tested, I remember coming down Brown Mountain behind me and I was like, I'd steer mountain bikes with rigid forks, you know, not the six inch of travel stuff. And we'd have to, you know, we'd jump bikes and we'd go for the rough parts of the trail to see it, you know, how does this work? And whether it was skewers, seep, you know, so many aluminum, machine aluminum, anodized, fancy colors would break. There was no testing. And I, I sort of put the favor to Cannondale for being the first company to start to really recognize the need for testing. And I'm, I'm proud of the bike industry, honestly. I think the same thing what we've done with cycling with our doping controls, what we've done with our testing standards. And sure, there's still stuff that, that gets out, but testing has been a big deal. Um, and everything breaks. I mean, you know, it's just like, I don't, you know, this whole thing, like someone, like someone sees a broken frame, oh, blah, 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 you know, or, you know. You won't say what the frame is that broke. It's like, you know, to me, it doesn't matter. Everything, everything has a possibility of breaking. It's not, it's like this, this, so too many people in the bike industry, enthusiasts, you know, they, they're ready to paint with a scarlet letter, you know, any company or brand of something that breaks. Stuff happens. But I'm proud of the bike industry because I think from, for the most part, for as <laughs> crazy dangerous as a sport can be, it's more rider error that causes more problems than, than I think technical malfunctions you got to be careful you know you got to think about it. i mean there's some brands that you know that do well and you know the, the no-name brand stuff it's it just doesn't happen as much anymore i mean that was big in the 80s or 90s with the mountain bike stuff when every garage mechanic was oh i'm going to make my own skewers i'm going to make my own this you know and there was no there was no standards so it's gotten a lot better and i i never <clears throat> honestly i never think about it really and i mean i was like last year i was on brand new Trek road bike going down the street and I hit a big stinking pothole and I heard this huge crack and you know, the frame, the frame cracked. Um, and does that mean Trek bikes aren't any good? No, <clears throat> they still make great bikes and you know, they got warranties and everything. It just, it just, it was just an odd occurrence of, you know, whatever it was, my, my weight on the seat, a certain amount of <clears throat> or a certain place, the, the bump impact, whatever it happens. I can remember a long time ago, things coming out and then being recalled. And so yeah. you, and I, I think the first one I remember is, uh, was it the Viscount fork? I don't know if you remember that. It was an aluminum fork on a, on a bike mm -hmm. called a Viscount. And, and mm -hmm. that's what sort of as a bike dealer, as a, or a bike shop owner that, you know, I sort of honed in on that saying, oh, well, what else do we need to look out for? Yeah. Yeah. Even within the last couple of weeks, I saw there was another, you know, there's been recalls on brain and you go to brain each day and you look at, and there's, there's still recalls. And, like it, it's unfortunate, you know, um, you know, SRAM famously with their first disc brake, you know, that was a huge costly problem when the scene, I found out the seals were failing at a certain temperature, cold temperature. I mean, that was a, that was a drag because especially it was a high profile item. And then to think that everybody thinking the naysayers saying, Oh, see, disc brakes aren't any good. No, they just, you know, it's kind of like, you know, the O-rings on the challenger. You know? Right. I mean, exactly. Hey, That's just what I thought of when you said that. <laughs> That's exactly what I thought of. It's not to mean it's okay, but it just, Sometimes again, stuff happens and it's unfortunate, but I have a hundred percent, you know, confidence in stuff that we, cause we test a lot of bikes, a lot of products and 
the breaking thing it never enters my mind. You know, my, my biggest concern when I go and test a bike is, you know, the, if I built it, that's what scares me is my <laughs> thinking lack of mechanical skills. Yeah. Because um, yeah. nine times out of 10, I forget to tighten, you know, stem bolt or something like yeah, that. Yeah, so. that's not a good idea. That's not a good idea. <laughs> Once again, let me remind listeners, I'm speaking with Zap. He is the editor-in-chief of Road Bike Action Magazine. He is a mountain bike hall of famer. And I want to talk about one thing before – well, there are a couple things before we hang up. But this one is about indoor cycling events. So they – I don't know. I'm just not one of these trainer-type people. But there's a whole new era of cycling that's happening yeah. online. And it's like Zwift and Stages and Wahoo and Peloton – is this trend going to continue? Do you see that this is a new way to compete since you love competition? Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, you know, and Peloton being the biggest component of that, I think, that indoor bike brand. So, I mean, the numbers are just staggering, right? Um, in terms of Peloton's infusion of cash, the, the number of Zwift people, you know, using riding with Zwift. I don't get it. I don't like it myself. So I don't like it. I just like, I live in Southern California. So it's like, uh, you know, if the day, if it ever comes when it's too cold, guess what? I'll stay in and watch footballers. I mean, I'll just, I just don't do the indoor thing. I don't like, ah, I've tried it before. It's so boring. And to me, I'm just, I, I a bike is to be outside and have the wind in the face. And it's, and it's not from a circulating fan sitting in front of you. People have made the point about like all these guys, you know, doing indoor cycling, coming to cycling through an indoor environment and then getting out on the road having some great fitness, but guess what? No freaking handling skills. That is a problem. That's a point to consider. <laughs> but I've almost been taken out by people with plenty of handling skills too. So we like to think that like e-bikes are the gateway drug to cycling for, for people who are non-cyclists, but I think actually indoor cycling is that. Hmm. If people are turning circles for their own health, then I'm happy to, you know, because right. I mean, obviously American has, America has an obesity problem that continues to be largely unaddressed so if they're turning circles indoors in front of a circulating fan or a computer screen or their tv screen whatever yeah you know whatever yeah. i mean i and the competition thing is interesting again i i don't get it i'm not you know into racing avatars or anything else but my friends that do it i i've i incurred i've got my friend an indoor trainer just to help him rehab from an injury and he's completely hooked and he's like dude i was on the tour de france course yesterday blah 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 you know it's like <laughs> Okay, I did, I did three laps in the Rose Bowl, so not, not the same thing, but it <laughs> felt great for me. Okay, that's great. But it's, it's, a, it's a good observation that for those people, and especially women, a lot of women are afraid to be outside. They don't yeah. want to ride in traffic for sure, and they don't even want to go on trails. Yeah, and that's, the, and that's, and that's you know, the other side of that is like, you know, the gravel thing. I mean, I, I was a gravel guy thinking, oh, this is so good because it was like my going back to my mountain bike, motorcycle backgrounds, being in the dirt. Awesome. 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 That was it for me. And all of a sudden people started telling me, I remember a guy from Colorado saying, you know, I love gravel bikes. Cause guess what? I don't have to be around cars. It's right. so much safer. And right. I thought, you know, blink safety, you know, cause I ride in LA all the time. Honestly, and it is, you know, it's a, it's warfare out there. And I, I, I'm kind of numb to that. I, it's kind of a challenge to me is always like thinking like, you know, am I going to get hit today or not? To, so has anything changed but, with traffic out there since, you know, the, yeah, there was a lockdown? <laughs> oh, it did. How nice. How, how pleasant for all of us. Yeah. Really. All right. I mean, you know, back in the, back in the summer, it was good because there were, there were definitely fewer cars. I mean, you could, it was noticeable, fewer cars on the road, but it's back to normal. And, and even, you know, fewer cars in LA just means what, only 6 million, uh, you know, on any given road bike ride. So, yeah. 
I want to get to the important stuff. What do you do when you're not writing, you know, reviewing product, editing your magazine? And don't say riding your bike. You have to say something different. What else do you do? Um, think of my daughter and read the New York Times. Where's your daughter? Is she not around or is she around? She's in, oh no, she's in Washington, D.C., but she fills my every other moment when I'm not writing. What does she um, do? She's a, a political junkie working working in D.C., and um, she's, she's the everything to me. And then uh, so I, re- I lead a rather dreary life, but one that I wouldn't ever want to change because, I mean, I spend so much time. I love, I love the job. That's why, you know, I've been in it for 35 years now. It feels like I'm in my first year. My, my daily vow is to outwork anyone else that's in the building. Every day I wake up realizing I'm going to talk to someone about bicycles or motorcycles or ride a bicycle. And there's no, there's no greater way to wake up in the morning than any of the thought than the fact that your eyes opened. It's just interesting. I mean, I've been doing this for 40 some odd years, first as a bike dealer. I've been doing the podcast for 10 years, been teaching yoga for some, And every day I say the same thing. Wow, what could be better than what I'm doing? And now yeah. it's even better because you get to focus more without a lot of outside influence. So then I have three really important questions. What's okay. your favorite food? Oh, it's, it's Mexican. Yeah. <laughs> the food of my, my people. I mean, there's, you know, Few things beat a great Tuscan meal when you're in Tuscany and you're riding bikes. I mean, I you know I did an Ingamba trip once and it was just you know or when I've gone through through Italy on numerous trips or you know in Piazza San Marco with my daughter where it's literally literally nothing more than um, an aperol spritz and some peanuts. But uh, you know you know I mean Mexican food to me has always been the go-to after you ride. It's like you know I I you know it's like the thought of a, a cheeseburger and French fries just don't do it for me. But uh, so yeah, Mexican food is you know. Nothing beats a, a solid carnitas burrito to me. What kind of music do you like to listen to? Everything. I mean, like right now, there's some uh, actually, as coincidentally, some Mexican ranchero playing, but I'm on Pandora. But uh, everything from Joni Mitchell's Blue album, which is one of the greatest albums in the world, to um, the Clash and the Clampdown, of course, Bad Brains, um, punk rock's had a huge influence on my life. So I listen to try to listen to everything. Um, and whether it's uh, Toots and the Maytals or Minor Threat, I mean, I, it's I, I, music's a big part of my life. And I mean, I and that's like I when I'm writing, music always plays when I write. I never write in solitude. Um, so, hmm. um, yeah. Nice. How about pets? Do you have any pets? No. Um, the travel things kind of. I I once had a great dog, a Rhodesian Ridgeback, and I've just 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 recently with the with all this COVID stuff, I'm just, you know like sitting there watching the TV and. In the Tour de France, I'm thinking like, and you know, the industry is now embracing, you know, Zoom bike launches. So I'm thinking like, gosh, maybe, you know, have my, are my travel days, you know, finally behind me? And if so, does that mean I should get a new dog? So I'm a dog person um, and not a small dog person. Small dogs are kind of akin to rats to me. So the dog has to be at least, you know, of, of medium size. Um, anyways, so I might get another dog. Rhodesians are nice dogs. Yeah, they are my husband likes too. Rhodesians, yeah. Yeah. Well, this has just been a delightful conversation, and I'm so happy you were able to take the time to talk with me. We've been talking with Zapata Espinoza. He is the editor-in-chief of Road Bike Action Magazine. You can look him up in the Mountain Bike Hall of Fame. And I hope we get a chance to actually face-to-face someday have a conversation. Someday, maybe at the next Interbike or something. Yeah. <laughs> in your dreams. Have a wonderful, wonderful fall. My pleasure. Thank, Thank you very you. much for having me. Take care. Right. Cheers. Zapata Espinosa is the editor of Road Bike Action. Frankly, he doesn't have a website. 
works more than he plays, and clearly loves to ride his bikes. My thanks to Zap and to Lynette Tepfer from White Industries for joining me this week. Next week, we'll be talking with the founder of Strava about the new Metro app, among other things, and we'll check in with Ben Serrata. I hope you enjoyed the show. Thank you for listening. Please remember to rate the podcast on your favorite app and write a couple of lines of review. Also, you know, it's okay to share the show with other people. Please stay safe. Remember to vote. And if you have a chance, go for a ride. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us today on The Outspoken Cyclist with Diane Jenks. We hope you enjoyed this week's show and we welcome your thoughts and comments. We'll be back next week with new guests, topics, conversations, and news from the world of cycling. Remember, you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and most other podcast apps and never miss an episode. The Outspoken Cyclist is a copyrighted production of DBL Promotions with the assistance of WJCU-FM Cleveland a service of John Carroll University. Thanks again for listening, ride safely, and we'll see you next week.